scripture reading for today is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 19. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Okay, good morning, church. Um, this is a little odd, preaching to an empty auditorium, with the exception of my AV man. But um, Randy Lane and I have a great toilet paper to human ratio here at the church building. We've got all we need. All right, so what, we're, what our intention to, in doing this is to basically... Um, provide some sense, you know, some semblance of, of church community, given the crisis that we're all going through. Uh, we wanted to provide some spiritual nourishment, so we're hoping that you're able to listen to this and can take the Lord's Supper with, you know, your family or uh, maybe some nearby church members. Um, I know a couple community groups I've heard of are, are doing this. We're in our neighborhood. We're, we're doing it with uh, uh, my mom and uh, Serena and, and the Wheelers, but um, we do want to keep everybody safe and minimize especially exposure to, you know, the at-risk groups, uh, and we have several folks in that category in our own church, and I will tell you that um, just this past couple of days, there's been a teacher at Fuquay Barina Elementary School, which is about, you know, half a mile from our church building, that tested positive uh, for the virus, and I know there's about there's at least four people or so in our own church that are in and out of that school and have been in and out of that school for the last couple of weeks. And one prayer request in that regard, uh, Nikki Helton has worked somewhat extensively in that school and uh, has got some anxiety about, about it. So um, please be praying for her. And we just want to keep everybody safe, but still do the best we can to, to you know, stay together. So I hope this helps today. Our theme for 2020 um, has been, of course, the idea of worship. And we're not meaning worship in the narrow sense of, of public or corporate worship, uh, but the more fundamental, broad sense of worship as adoring God, being devoted to God with, with, with one's whole being. And we've been trying to more fully appreciate how central to our discipleship is our worship of God, our adoration of God, our love for God. We want to learn to love uh, the God who, in the language of 1 John 4, 19, first loved us. So it's about loving God back, uh, having a love for him that supersedes all of our other loves. And that really is the essence of worship, not putting anything else, any other um, devotion um, or trust, source of devotion or trust in front of God. So worship indeed lies at the very heart of our lives. It defines who we are how we think, it uh, defines our uh, emotional responses and situations, it, it um, orchestrates what we value and how we act and so on. 
But what is the relationship between worship and fear? Worship and fear. This is a very important question for those who would have the worship of God at the center of their lives. And after all, the verse immediately prior to 1 John 4.19 singles out the problem, the challenge of fear. Look at 1 John 4.18. Right before saying we love because he first loved us, the apostle says there is no fear in love, but perfect or complete love, mature love, casts out fear or drives out fear. So he instantly focuses us on the, the challenge that fear poses to love. So this warrants a careful consideration of fear and all of its cousins. Things like worry and anxiety, fear, these all go together. They're really all expressions of the same set of, of problems. Um, so what we want to do this morning is look at three aspects of fear as we examine it. We want to look at fear's geography, fear's enemy, and fear's remedy. The geography of fear, the enemy of fear, the remedy of fear. So let's begin uh, with this point about fear's geography. And what I mean by this is to ask the question of ourselves, how widespread is, is the problem of fear? How significant is this threat? Um, does it, you know, is it a niche problem that applies to only parts of humanity? To whom does this apply? How widely uh, is this point applicable? I want you to notice something here. Uh, 1 John 4 does not say, now, for those of you who happen to have a fear problem, well, love is a solution for that too. This isn't a niche, you know, problem that he's addressing. He, he, John is assuming that everyone, all of his readers, his first century readers as well as everyone throughout subsequent uh, millennia who would access this as part of the New Testament, the Word of God, that would include us, has a fear problem. Apparently, fear and anxiety are no respecter of persons. And I understand that um, different personalities have different anxieties about different things. So maybe, you know, maybe you're a person who has no, uh, very little uh, fear in the, in the area of uh, physicality. You've got a lot of physical courage. You're not afraid of heights. You're not afraid of adventure. You're not afraid of, you know, uh, you know any, anything physical. But maybe that comes easy to you. What about social courage? There's people who have a lot of physical courage who, uh, you know, just uh, quiver in the face of uh, social anxiety, having to address awkward situations um, in social situations. Maybe they're, they're physically courageous and socially fearful. And maybe somebody else isn't socially fearful at all. They'll say whatever they think whenever they think they need to, very boldly. But then when it comes to emotions, they can be fearful or anxious and have serious trouble opening up uh, and talking about what's on the, their inside. So different people fear different things, but everybody deals with fear. And evidence of this pervasiveness of fear, evidence of fear's ubiquity, is how successful politicians and journalists are at exploiting our fears. I mean, this is a daily thing, and I think it's a, a kind of tacit proof that fear really works. It, it, it's so universal and they know that, that it's one of their main stocks and trades. So take politicians. You know, one group of politicians may tell you to fear one thing. The other side tells you to fear another thing. So one group says what you need to fear is the media 
or uh, taxes or gun control or all things foreign. Another political group may tell you to fear something else. You need to worry about corporations and rich people and pollution and lack of gun control. Both are tapping into fear. And you can say the same thing about journalists. Journalists can really stoke our fears. There's a saying in journalism when they're deciding what stories uh, to put you know, in the big front part of the, the, the broadcast or have the big font headlines at the top of the, the newspaper or um, you know, online uh, journalism in its many forms. And the saying is this, if it bleeds, it leads. If it bleeds, it leads. They want something that's gonna capture clicks, Nielsen ratings, what have you. And of course, that doesn't mean there's not some substratum of facts and data to discuss, you know, about gun safety or the amount of taxation and government regulation that's suitable and how much, you know, climate change it needs to be addressed and in what ways or whatever. I'm not saying there aren't real facts that journalists and politicians are uh, alluding to that would be worthwhile to talk about, you know, and debate and discuss. But we have to all admit that both uh, journalists and politicians get a lot of personal mileage out of telling us basically that the sky is falling. That gets votes, that gets clicks. Why? Because fear and anxiety and worry are universal. The scriptures address fear as if it's universal. Hebrews 2 says, talking about the coming of Jesus into the world to save us, he says in Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share, human children, the, the, the sons and daughters of Adam. Since the, the children that God made share in flesh and blood, that's our nature, he, that is Jesus himself, likewise partook of, the, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And notice verse 15, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Despite the fact that certain people will claim they don't fear death, that's not what the Holy Spirit says. This is a universal fear that only Jesus uh, can deliver us from. And it's an enslaving fear. We were subject to lifelong slavery because of this fear of death. And as we've noted before in sermons and Bible classes here uh, with this church, is that the most commonly occurring command in all the Bible is do not be afraid. Fear not. That occurs more frequently than any other command in the Bible. So fear's geography, to go back to the way we framed this point, fear's geography is basically universal. It's not limited to a certain place, a certain people, a certain personality type, or anything like that. So here's the globe. Uh, you go to North America, you got fear. You go to Africa, you got fear. You go to Australia, you got fear. You go to South America, you got fear. You got fear in Asia. I don't know if there's fear in Antarctica. Probably some penguins and scientists or something down there. They're fearful too, you know, uh, 12 people. But, but fear is as common as being human. So what are we to do about it? Thankfully, fear does not get the last word, not according to the gospel of Jesus. And so let's talk secondly about fear's enemy. The enemy of fear. And the enemy of fear is love. The enemy of fear is love. 1 John 4, 18 again. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. Where you have love, you do not have fear. Where you have fear, to the extent you have fear, you do not have love. 
They, it's a zero-sum game with fear and love. They can't both, this town isn't big enough for the both of them. Um, and and they're, they're mortal enemies. Think of them as like natural enemies. They're like, you know, the cobra and the mongoose or uh, Roadrunner and Wiley e. Coyote or Red Sox and Yankees or wh whatever you want to pick. Love, by definition, drives out fear. It destroys fear. It crushes fear. So how does love do this? What are the mechanisms by which love drives out fear? Well, I want to answer with a couple of things that I think are implied in the context of 1 John's discussion of love. And this could include a couple of things. First of all, and these are facets of love. If love is what drives out fear, how does it do it? Well, it's by looking at each of the facets of love. The first of those is our love for other people. Being other-oriented. Our love for others. 1 John, in fact, commands this of its readers. In 1 John 3, it's one of the places in, in 1 John where it talks, you know, talks all about the love of God and how uh, we can't say we love people. We, uh, uh, you can't say we love, we, can lo we love God whom we haven't seen if we don't love the people around us that God made that we do see. Uh, and in 1 John 3, he applies that to people in need. He says in 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love. Here, here is the litmus test of love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So it's about sacrificial giving to other people. Verse 17, he applies it more specifically. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth, just like Christ did. And so we're to be actively, sacrificially thinking about the needs of other people. I think in this connection also of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And remember, one of the things he did is he attends to, basically the thing he did, is he takes the time and incurs a certain amount of risk and sacrifice to attend to the health needs of this man who's been beaten up, who's lying there vulnerable on the side of the road to Jericho. And Jesus basically told that story to say, this is a picture, a concrete example of the essence of loving your neighbor. And loving your neighbor and loving... Uh, God the Father, Jesus says, are the, the essence of, of all the scriptures. That's what all the scriptures hang on. They're the sort of interpretive key to the Bible, the hermeneutic key to the rest of the Bible. They're the lens that you should look at all the other verses through because they're really all about love, loving God, loving your neighbor. And the Samaritan helps this person physically, you know, actively. He doesn't just talk about it. And that's enjoined upon us in 1 John Three, um, but, but fear, this is the problem, fear pushes back against this love. And it gives us instead incentives to think in, uh, about our own needs instead of the needs of that person on the side of the road or our brothers or sisters or whoever it is. Um, you know, if we give like 1 John 3 says, that's a sacrifice. You've got to give from your own bank account to somebody else. If you're like the Samaritan who is going along the Jericho Road, the Jericho Road was notorious for robbers and bandits. While he's kneeling to help the guy on the side of the road, he's at risk himself. And fear wants you to prioritize those things. It wants you to think more about yourself and the risk to you than it does the needs of others. And I think that's really the problem. Fear puts, pushes us in the opposite direction. Anxiety and worry push us in the opposite direction of love. Because love is about other people. Fear, by definition, is self-absorbed. Think about this. 
Few things are more self-absorbing than fear, than anxiety. By definition, fear is something that is self-focused. When I'm fearful, I'm fixated on myself. It's what I'm worried about, what I need, what might happen to me. Uh, Our perspective when we're fearful becomes inward-oriented. All right? And you can see this anytime there's social panic, right? A natural disaster, a contagion, whatever it is, we begin to see a lot of people start looking out for number one. You know, this phenomenon of hoarding, it happens every time. I mean, what about everybody else's need for toilet paper? You know, they need it too. But a lot of times people lose their sense of of focus and, and just start thinking about themselves. So how does love combat that? How does it combat this self-focus? Well, love, by definition, is selfless. It is other-oriented. So it has the ability to take us out of our own head and out of our own needs and out of our own uh, worries and to begin to think about other people. And serving other people, attending to the needs of other people, reorients, fundamentally reorients our entire focus. It becomes less about us and more about somebody else. So at the very least, beginning to serve other people makes us forget a little bit about our worries. Let me give you one biblical example of this. Elijah the prophet, after the contest at Mount Carmel, you know, this epic battle between the true God of the Bible, the the true God of the world, Yahweh, and uh, the false gods that Israel was dabbling in. And so there are the prophets to the false god uh, of Baal, and then there's, the, there's Elijah, the prophet of the true God. And they have this great contest and, and very, in a very graphic way, a very uh, total way, uh, the prophets of this pagan uh, god are, uh, are defeated. But Jezebel, the queen, um, who is very miffed by that, vows a kind of blood vendetta um, upon Elijah and says, uh, I'm going to kill him. And so he runs away. He goes all the way uh, south to Mount Horeb and is found there. We find him sitting under a broom tree or a juniper tree, basically wishing that God would take his life. He's so distraught, he's ready to die. And God comes to him in that famous reply, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, not in the wind, but in that low voice or that still small voice. And he says this to him in 1 Kings 19. Picking it up in verse 13 of 1 Kings 19. He's heard the voice of God now, the the, the low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, we read, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, back to God, I have been very uh, very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left... And they seek my life to take it away. So he's very distraught. He's very sad. He's very worried. Very fearful. Ready to die. And verse 15 says that the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So God says a couple of things to Elijah to sort of reorient his his perspective. Um, First one is, I've got 7,000 people who are faithful that you don't know about. Just because you don't know about them doesn't mean they don't exist. But the point I really want to make to you is the second thing God says. 
He says, you're sitting here under this broom tree wanting to die because you're so worried, so distraught. And God says, basically, Elijah, get up and go back to work. Go serve people. Go do, go serve me. Go down and do your work as a prophet and anoint this king and do this and do that. Do what he had been doing all along. And I think a lot of times there's a lot of good lessons in that for us. When we're focused on our own problems, God might be saying, start serving other people. Help them address their problems. And that love, that selfless, other-oriented um, path can help knock us out of the fear that we're so sometimes obsessive on. But truth be told, if we're honest, it's difficult to focus on the needs of other people unless we can believe that our own needs will be met. It's hard to focus on helping somebody else when you're worried about you and your family. But one of 1 John's points is that we do have these needs met. They're completely met by another aspect, another facet of love. And this facet of love is God's love for us. So not just our love for others, but God's love for us. God completely meets our needs by loving us in ways that are unimaginably fantastic. Verse uh, 14 of 1 John 4 says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 16, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So what he's saying is that in Christ, and of course this is just another statement of the gospel that we read in many different uh, manifestations and, and, and wordings throughout the New Testament. What he's saying is that in Christ, God, a being of transcendent power and unspeakable holiness, has actually entered our world and has taken upon himself our weakness and our brokenness and is delivering us from our hopeless plight. God's love for us meets all the needs we could have so that we're freed up to meet the needs of other, others. And that's why fear's remedy uh, has to be talked about as well. Because really, um, there is a third facet of this perfect love, quote-unquote, that drives out fear. And that third facet, that third aspect of what perfect love means is our love back toward God. We love, 1 John 4, 19 says, because He first loved us. It doesn't have an object, it just says we love. We love whom? We love others, we love ourselves, we love God. It doesn't, it, we, we're left to, to infer that. Certainly, the number one thing we're to love is God. We love God because He first loved us. Just like we love others because He first loved us. So this is, this is the facet of love that has to do with our love going back toward God. We're reciprocating. We're loving the God who first loved us. Now, as we come to appreciate God and His love for us more and more, our affection for God, our devotion to God, uh, our attraction to God grows more and more. Those things grow as the grandeur and majesty and power of God in our eyes grow. So as we see that His power and love and faithfulness are so worthy of our devotion, we begin to ascribe worthship to Him. An ancient you know, linguistic ancestor of our word worship 
we begin to worship him more and more because we ascribe to him more worship. And so, um, really, this is, uh, this is uh, a key to, uh, to, to the remedy, or the key to the remedy for fear. Let me share with you a quote here um, from uh, Paul David Tripp's book, Awe. Um, we often let circumstances especially dire circumstances, worrying circumstances, rather than God, determine our sense of well-being and our state of mind. And this is a, before I, I read this, I want to say to y'all, and y'all probably know this, this is very indicting for me personally. Here's what he says. Will you let your interpretation of circumstances tell you who God is? Or will you allow God's awesome revelation of himself to interpret your circumstances for you? You see, people who live in fear who beat themselves up with too many what-if questions, or who have trouble turning off their minds when they go to bed, don't have a circumstances problem. They have an awe problem. Let me read that again. People who live in fear, who beat themselves up with what-if questions, who have trouble turning off their minds when they go to bed, they don't really have a circumstances problem. They have an awe problem. You and I will only rest in situations over which we have no control if we are in awe of the one who controls them for his glory and for our good. So how is it that worship for God, our love for God, our worship for God has the power to crush our anxieties? It's because this enlarged view of God and who God is shows God to be so much bigger than any problem or circumstance we may be facing. Right? If God is sovereign over all the world, if He is sovereign over everything in the world, from microbes to man, from quarks to quasars, then we need to trust His promises that He'll be with us, even when circumstances are difficult, even when they are hard to understand. And there have been many times throughout biblical history when God's people didn't understand what was going on. And yet he calls them to trust him and his sovereignty over everything and his love for them. Let me give you the case of Israel as we angle toward the conclusion of our sermon here. Israel has gone into exile. They have repeatedly ignored God's prophetic warnings and they've, they've committed spiritual adultery by going the way of their idolatrous neighbors uh, and, and finally, God allows them to go into Babylonian captivity and to be put under the thumb of pagan oppressors. And Isaiah 40 has this beautiful uh, promise that relief is finally coming, that their liberty is finally coming, that their captivity is finally coming to an end. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, God says through the prophet, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. What is the prophet saying to Israel? He's saying this captivity that, 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 you, that you've uh, faced, um, it's ending. It's actually coming to an end. God is finally delivering you. He has not, in fact, forsaken you. But how could they believe this? Given their years in captivity, given all the destruction and dislocation and even death, the seeming triumph of their captors. It seemed like Yahweh, it seemed like the Lord 
had left them on their own, that he had, in fact, forsaken them. So how can they come to believe this promise, this comforting promise that opens the first chapter of Isaiah 40? Here's Isaiah's answer down in verse 9 of the same chapter. Isaiah 40, verse 9. Notice what Isaiah says to them. How can we believe that? He says, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, notice this. Tell the people to behold your God. Behold your God. Really ponder, deeply consider who it is that we're talking about when we're talking about God. Behold your God. He spends the next 20 verses showing them God's power. God is the one who sits above the circle of the earth. He's transcendent. All the nations, even the one which has so oppressed Israel at this moment in history and seems to be running the world, all those nation, nations, when compared to the weight of God, are like mere dust on the scales, he says. They don't even, they don't even register hardly. God is the one who casts the very stars into the heavens and calls them out by name and so on. All of that shows the sovereignty of God. But it's not merely that God is unimaginably powerful. It's also that he's full of tender love and affection for his people. It's that he brings this tremendous power to bear on the circumstances of his people. That he will be with them in the hardship and will ultimately deliver them. And that's how Isaiah 40 closes. It's one of uh, my family's favorite texts. We always call Isaiah 40 our family passage. I'm going to close the sermon with a reading here from Isaiah 40, 27 through 31. Why do you say, apparently they're having trouble believing that the deliverance is finally here, that the salvation is finally coming. And so the prophet says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, these things? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. He's saying, why do you say that God doesn't see what you're going through and feel your pain and, and, and perceive that you're, you're in, in, in a real tough place? Have you not known, verse 28, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So folks, if we think of fear as a kind of destructive pathogen mercilessly afflicting all humanity. Love, beginning with the love of God, is its cure. God's love is its vaccine.